When you go on holiday, there is no finer achievement than doing absolutely nothing. Nothing on the beach, nothing by the pool. Walking kind of nowhere and chatting about nothing. As an Expedia member, you can save up to 30% when you add a hotel to your flight. So you can have a bit more money to go out there with great ambition to do absolutely nothing. Expedia. Made to travel. Sisters, siblings, welcome to Penn Sunday School. I'm Matt Donnelly, and we are picking up with episode two of episodes with Paul Provenza and Dan. That's right, Dan is here. I know what it's like to be an unaddressed co-host sitting in from time to time, and Dan, I'm giving Dan some credit. He was an awful lot of fun to talk to, as well as Penn and Paul Provenza. Here they are preaching the love, episode two. Here's Dan. So I'm going to just take a little bit of a of a side road here, which I think will send us back. Because so your dad had referenced Johnny Carson, mm-hmm. like how are you going to be in show business if you're not Johnny Carson? So Johnny Carson's journey, as you probably know, begins in the middle of nowhere in Nebraska, mm-hmm. and he started as a magician. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things is that even though he idolized Jack Benny, Carson was till his dying day notoriously shy. And he said the way he learned how to be funny was when he started doing magic, he would buy tricks and that the tricks would come with what was called, I think maybe still called patter. Yeah. And that's how he learned how to talk on stage. And he said that he went from being like a straight magician doing, you know, pretty good tricks to being a funny magician. Yeah. That's what I did with, that's what I did with juggling. I mean, just straightforward because I was, I did do magic. When I was in high school, but not the way everybody else did magic. I didn't care at all about the tricks. I cared about the uh, dexterity. So I would practice. Anytime there's something required practice, I was there. If you need someone locked in a room for eight hours doing one repetitious thing until they could do it, I can do that. If you get me in the right mood and there's a cup there and I have a pencil in my hand, I will sit there for two hours to like repeatedly throw that pencil <laughs> into the glass. And uh, I have whatever that is, that focus to be able to practice. I can practice. So I ended up a very, very good juggler who could also handle a deck of cards, but didn't do any tricks. I could never do tricks. And then I met Tal, I hated magic, hated magic in a philosophical and moral way because of Kreskin. I was a real science freak. I loved, loved reading about science. My family is not it was lower middle class. Not my dad was a jail guard. You know, not not wealthy by any means, but not suffering in any way. And um, I saw Kreskin on uh, on some TV show. Wouldn't have been Carson because Carson hated him. Uh, but I saw him on some TV show doing an experiment in ESP, and he was hawking his ESP set, right, right that you could buy. And I told my parents that's science, and I'm interested in science. And uh, so they bought me. This piece of shit, this overpriced piece of shit, which we could afford, but it shouldn't have been what they bought me. Uh, and then it was a pendulum, a few other th- ESP cards. And because I was serious about it, I made my parents go through all these experiments and keep check, 
records and everything else, which I was very embarrassed about, no matter how much my parents told me, listen, we were just spending time with you, Ben. It wasn't a bother, but I was really bothered. And then I happened to be at the library, and the section for magic and the section of juggling were close to each other. I was at the library all the time. There was Ken Benj, 100 Tricks with Three Balls. (laughs) (laughs) And then there was a Dunninger book on mentalism. And I pulled that book down. I was thumbing through it, and I saw some version of the trick Kreskin had done on TV as a scientific experiment. And I threw the most psychotic, long tantrum anyone has ever thrown because I'm still in it. <laughs> and I, I, uh, I could not believe that an adult had gone on TV and lied. I could not believe that a scientist had gone on TV and lied. So I immediately uh, stopped working all my science classes. That was the end of science for me. My grades went from straight A's right down to failing. My rage at um, science, lying, and, um, and uh, magic was unbounded. I was just full of hate and full of embarrassment total embarrassment that I had made my parents go through these stupid experiments based on the magic trick. I was furious. And then I met Randy, or read Randy's book. Then I met Teller. Uh, and Flim, Teller, Flim Flam Man? Flim Flam, Flim Flam, yeah. And then Teller said to me, there's a way to do magic honestly. Now, how and where did you meet Teller? I met Teller because, <laughs> because um, I went to buy a stereo in my hometown. I finally got enough money from juggling <laughs> to- uh, Were you working the street a lot? No, never street performing. Oh. Well, uh, uh, talent shows, nursing homes. Fairs kind of thing? Yeah. A little the kind of stuff that Carson was doing. Yeah. Okay. And getting funnier and funnier and making a little money. Also, I worked I worked as a dishwasher. I always had jobs, always had money. And I wanted to buy a really good stereo. So I went to a good stereo store. And there was a uh, salesman there who had graduated from Amherst College. Uh, with a degree in musicology. So he was that many years older than me, five years older than me, named Weir Chrisimer. And he said, uh, we're talking about stereo equipment and, you know, what, what I want a tube amp and can I get a Macintosh? Or- oh, I know I'm buying a stereo. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about <laughs> pussy. And uh, we talked about that. And I then mentioned that I was a juggler. And he said to me, do you think you could uh, juggle while playing the bass drum to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And I said, uh, yeah, I can, I can learn that. Uh, he said, have you, well, have you done something like that? I said, no, but I, I can learn it. And he said, well, I do a show called the Altmar Sheck Memorial Society for the Preservation of Unusual Discussing Music that we do in Amherst with uh, mostly graduates from Amherst College. And he said, uh, could you be there? I'm going to do the Ninth Symphony. And I'd like you to be juggling then. And I said, uh, sure. And he said, and if I were to do uh, Aram Kachaturian's Saber Dance, and I said, what's that? And he sang, oh yeah, that. Uh, could you maybe throw bathroom plungers around me and get them to stick to a wall? I said, wow, that'll be hard, but I can learn it. And he said, okay, but this is a comedy thing. I want to know if you can be funny. And I said, I-, I don't know. And he gave me Watt by Samuel Beckett. He gave me the book Watt by Samuel Beckett, handed it to me. I was 16, 17, and said, read this, come back from the stairs store next week and tell me why it's funny. So I did that. And he said, yes, you can be in this 
thing, which is all Amherst College graduates doing these weird musical performances. And one of those Amherst College graduates was Teller. And Teller was, Teller had written a bunch of poetry in Latin about Otmar Scheck, which he was pretending to be blind and reciting it while selling pencils out front. (laughs) So Teller was speaking Latin and selling pencils. And I was throwing plungers, incidentally, it's one of the hardest fucking tricks I ever learned. And I did learn it. <laughs> I could throw a plunger one whole revolution against the wall. I mean, that act, right, should be should have been on the Sullivan Show. <laughs> so I, we, I started, uh, and then Clown College came in between then, and that's when I met Teller. And Teller was a, uh, a high school Latin teacher. And he was, so to him, to me, he had an infinite amount of money. Because he actually had a job, right? A and he didn't have depend salary paycheck. Everybody else I knew was living on the streets. Because I, I left high school and just hitchhiked around the country for two years, which Clown College was in the middle of. I just hitchhiked. I lived on the streets essentially, and then I did a lot of street juggling. And uh, I moved to New York City with Mike Motion to practice. Now, why we thought we should move to one of the highest rent places in the world <laughs> to practice juggling is beyond me. We got a place with high ceilings. We practiced eight hours a day, six days a week. There was no breaks in that. Just juggling. Broke my finger, still kept juggling. Just juggle, juggle, juggle. That's all we did. Getting really fucking good. And Teller, we were, we, our budget, because I had a whole budget for this practice time, this four-month practice time, was uh, peanut butter, bread, powdered milk. That's all we ate. And then Teller, because he met me at the Otmar Sheck thing, started coming into the city on Friday and buying me dinner at a restaurant. Now, this was mind-blowing. Now, Teller claims, and he's absolutely right, but it's not my place to say it, that I didn't particularly like him (laughs) or like being around him, but Jesus, it was dinner. (laughs) So Teller would take me to dinner at like a Greek restaurant or like a real pizza place, like a New York City restaurant, I would go and just eat. And boy, would I eat. <laughs> and Teller would pay the check. And during that time, Teller talked with me about the theory of magic that you could do it honestly. So that's how a person who hates magic ended up in magic. Uh, would Teller also take uh, we're along for dinner because you guys all no you were a trio first we were a trio first but that came that okay. came uh, I had to go through the whole time of juggling with Mike Motion right okay so at this moment how much do you know about the history of magic other than what outraged you about Kreskin and how much did you know about the history of magic as a, a form in which to be funny. Uh, almost nothing. I mean, I, I just had, had my memories of Ed Sullivan and all the magicians I hated on there. By the way, the person that followed the Beatles was a magician, but that's not important on Ed Sullivan. Uh, and who was that? I forgot. It's, it's a name. Exactly I is yeah, the answer. Exactly. What we're exactly. Talking about. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I would, at that time when I was, uh, working with Mike Moshe, we'd, we'd juggle eight hours a day and I would also go to the museum of television and history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just have to say this. We've been talking about Mike Motion a lot. It's important to say that Mike Motion actually won a MacArthur Genius Grant yeah. for his work as a juggler. Yeah, probably the wow. uh, most important juggler in the uh, late 20th century. Yeah, I taught him to juggle. He denies that now, but it, it's true. I mean, I only 
only taught him, I learned a day earlier. But that doesn't matter. <laughs> he still taught him to juggle. Um, yeah, he became a, a, and all the props he used his original act, and the idea for the original act was mine. <laughs> I just couldn't do it and couldn't make it into a good thing. And, and, and he is credited with being the inventor or somebody who took to another level contact juggling? He invented contact juggling entirely. Mm -hmm. And the way that came about was very simple. At that time, Teller, Mike Motion, me, and Weir Chris were all living together in New Jersey in one place. And I was trying to get a hold of different juggling ideas to do with Teller because I'd already stopped working with Michael, but he was still a friend. So I went into Chinatown in New York and I was looking around those weird plastic shops just see what props in. And I found these crystal balls about five inches in diameter, maybe, maybe five or six, yeah, made of acrylic so you could handle them. And I bought five of them. And I brought them back to where we lived. I bought three of them? Three inches. Three inches. So three inches. So I brought them, uh, I brought them back and I had them there. And then I sat with Teller and I sat juggling these and rolling them around and saying, God, I think there'd be something beautiful to be done with these. And Teller and I could not crack it. Left him in the, in the uh, corner of the rehearsal room that we shared. And Michael came to me uh, a couple weeks later and said, those crystal balls you got over there, uh, can I use them? And I'd say, yeah, I think it's a dead end, man. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I couldn't get anything with them. Do whatever you want. So we would go by there and then Michael Motion for weeks and weeks and weeks is rolling these crystal balls around. And I was going, that looks pretty good. <laughs> you know, do it with one ball. Just do it with one ball. Roll it. Yeah, that, try that. Yeah, it's good. Just, you know, little comments essentially heckling. And then all of a sudden he had invented contact juggling. And uh, which is really funny because I always say, and I guess this is just being being foolish and petty. But when someone says, you know, I really get into contact juggling, I would always say to them, you mean Michael Motion's act. Because <laughs> there is no contact juggling before Michael Motion. Unbelievable. It's not like it's a form of art. And then he went into Labyrinth and did the stuff for David Bowie. It's so interesting because it looks like it probably has a rich tradition of thousands right. of years in yes. China or yeah. something. Yeah, no, yeah. I watched it be developed. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> okay, so clearly you're still so passionate about juggling. You said... You know, best juggler at Ringling Brothers sure. College. Yeah. So then why the left turn to magic when you're so passionate about it still? Uh, it was just a teller. There's, there's no other reason. Really? Just simply teller. And teller had this intellectual idea that magic was intellectual. That simple sentence, magic is intellectual, is mind-blowing. Because teller said, of all the art forms, magic is the most intellectual because you're actually using your cognitive abilities to say this looks this way, it has to be another way, and that resolution of cognitive dissonance is what magic is. At a level that is not, uh, no matter how much you try to make music or even poetry uh, or comedy intellectual, it doesn't operate solely for the first punch at an intellectual level. The proof of that is if you show a child a magic trick, you know, this has vanished, so what? That must be the way the world is. You need to have a base thing. So Teller teaching me that, and Teller also teaching me that we could do magic without lying, really not lying at all, and also the Jerry Seinfeld, Jerry Seinfeld articulated it, and Jerry Seinfeld has already told me like at least five times, stop 
crediting me on that. Just say you said it. You've said it so much more than me. There's so many <laughs> clips of him doing this joke. <laughs> What's that? There's so many clips of him here's doing a, the joke. Here's a quarter. Now it's gone. You're a jerk. You're now a it's jerk. back. You're an asshole. Show's over. Right. And I said to Jerry, I said that all the time, and Jerry said, just say you did it. Just say, you know. But um, that quality of magic, all that stuff in magic that I hated is what propelled me through magic. So what did you... And also, I, I need to say, juggling and magic, which are always thrown together as garbage arts, along with ventriloquism and mime, are, of all the arts, the most diametrically opposed. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and, and the kind of people that do it are entirely different. Totally. Entirely different. You know, you can pick out, you can tell a room full of jugglers and magicians, and you can point to who the jugglers are and who the magicians are. You know why they get conflated? Because they're on the same bill. Exactly. The same garbage arts. No, um, but they but they share, like, if you go, if you went to, sure, you, know, yeah, yeah, a, yeah. A, you know, a vaudeville house, you would see yeah. them on the same in bill. The, in the, or, or in the same variety slot. Right. More likely than the same bill. Correct. So, uh, my sensibility is and I still fall into this. I still fall into that when I hate the juggling part of the arts. You know, which is the boy Mike Jones moves his fingers really fast when he's playing the piano. That's the juggler part of music, right? And there's also the juggling part of comedy. And you see that very much with Jerry Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. Now, there's so much of Jerry Seinfeld that's simply perfect. Right. You know, separate from the comedy. Right. <laughs> it's just perfect. It's like when people sing the national anthem and they have to do those terrible runs that they learn as, you know, like a vocal exercise yeah. and people, you know, say, oh, that's great singing. Yeah. And of course we know it isn't. Well, it's, especially they don't hit the notes. I mean, Ella Fitzgerald does that, but she hits every note. Right. So there, there was that, there was that tension and the comedy. And I, I realize how incredibly obnoxious that sounds to say I didn't have a choice but to be funny, but it really felt that way. You know, it really felt like I want to make this point and I'm going to say this point. Oh, Jesus, I did another joke. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you look at my, my, my writing, you know, when I write, uh, the, the latest thing I put out is a, is a murder mystery and it's a straightforward intellectual story. And I'm just talking to people who want to do it on TV and they go, I don't know, but it's all the asides. <laughs> so I still can't fucking do it. I still can't fucking do it. So take us to what you were, maybe you or you and Teller are studying as you're beginning to build that early thing. When I was doing that early stuff, I would go to the uh, Museum of Television Film and I would watch everything I could of every juggling act, every magic act to try to see if there's interesting stuff. And I found this uh, Native American juggler who did a whole thing with knives. And I really liked that. So I got knives made. And my early street performing was all done with my, my knife juggling act. Philadelphia, you know, mm-hmm. Head House Square was all my knife juggling. And uh, I would go through and find these great acts that I would start a little bit on and not finish, of course. You know, one of the acts I remember that I, I've always loved, and I've tried to do versions of this a zillion times, and I've always failed, which is I've always liked variety acts where there were no people on stage. And there was one family that did a hoop routine that I just fucking loved. Uh, you'd come in to the theater, and I'm, you know, I'm, this is the way I remember it. I haven't done my research on this. There was a set that was like a general store in a house with doors and stuff. And then two hoops would come out on stage 
and they would just roll out and go into one of the doors. <laughs> that would, and they would tell a story with these hoops that were, I mean, hula hoop type things, right. but different sizes. You know, this uh-huh, father uh-huh. and mother, different colors. And they, there was a family that learned to roll hoops so they could get the exact curve and the exact move. And I just loved Loved, loved the idea of going to the theater and seeing an act where you never saw the people. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Or represent, I'm not talking puppets, motherfucker. I'm not talking representation. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I saw, I saw Provenza getting ready. Just raising that one hand in the talking. Yeah, fuck him. Um, <laughs> so I finally did a trick called Barrel, where there's a barrel on stage with, um, with uh, poles going through it. Because uh, people enjoy good cooperage. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yep. Right. You saw that bit. Sure did. And you understand why I love that bit so much. Uh-huh. It's a barrel on stage. Uh-huh. It was also taken from one of my favorite things, which is Mel Brooks, The Critic. Uh-huh. You know Mel Brooks, The Critic? Sure, yeah. of course. Uh, where he bought the um, the experimental film. They talks about it. It's a cockroach. <sighs> it's a guy just watching an experimental film. And I love the idea. Ooh, there's a barrel on stage. <laughs> What's it doing? This is a very, very subtle bit. Just a barrel. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> One of the poles is moving. You know, that. so it was Mel Brooks plus the Hoop Act came together to make Barrel, which is one of the weirder Penn & Teller bits that I'm very fond of. And like the weirdest Penn & Teller bits, they always have in common that I'm more fond of them than anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and the crew, the crew is very aware of that. The crew is very aware when they come out and say, you know, this uh, new bit you just put in, you come out, claim you can't do something, then show you can't do it, and that's the way it ends. And I go, yes, that's what I like about it. About it, and they go, "Yep, that's what you like about it." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I was I was mixing that stuff up, and in the early days of Penn and Teller, it was um, juggling bit by me, magic bit by Teller, juggling bit by me, magic bit by Teller, uh, magic bit together. And at what point? And obviously, this is an incredibly important conscious decision. 
At what point did you guys decide, and maybe the story you told about your juggling partners informs this, at what point do you decide, okay, Penn talks, Teller doesn't? I never decided that. I'm not. I'm no part of that decision. When I first met Teller, he was working silently. He was doing what was called Teller's Silent Wonder Show. And he did that because Teller worked his way through college doing magic at frat parties. And I forgot what level of Dante's hell that is. And scored <laughs> the center. And he found that he was not quick. He was not funny. He was not fast. And there was no way to deal with hecklers unless he shut up and did rather macabre stuff. And people grew tired of heckling someone who didn't answer back. So um, he was working silently. And when we first worked together at the Minnesota Renaissance Festival, we were two separate acts on the same bill. So to do anything together... We had to maintain the integrity of the two characters. And at this point, I had worked bars and streets and really aggressive shit because I was, you know, I was homeless. So I was, you know, juggling for food, essentially. So I had gotten really tough and aggressive, really tough and aggressive. So that combination uh, ended up working that way. And then we just kept growing that way until it became a thing. But I am no part of the decision of one talking and one not talking. That was totally Teller's. Uh, we're into Penn and Teller now as a duo, but we got to do that sidestep to Asparagus Valley Cultural yeah. Society. Uh, we thought Weir is, st- uh, uh, no. I often would say that Weir was the funniest person I met, but since then I've met Gilbert Gottfried. <laughs> and uh, and on, uh, by the way, another, uh, another hundred people on that list, one of whom is in this room. Two of them may be in this room. Thank you. Please go three. Please go three. <laughs> Please go. I, I, I thought I was the one that was left out. I just assumed that was you on that list. Anyway, Weir was really, 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 really funny. And also, you remember, I looked up to Weir because Weir was five years older than me. Uh, now, this was a long time ago that I saw you guys, and it was my only interaction with Weir. We're seeing you as Asparagus Valley mm-hmm. Cultural Society. He felt very David Burnish to me. Very David Burnish. Very David Byrne. Although he wouldn't see it that way, but yeah. So funny and so intellectual. You know, that's what I what I loved about Weir. You know, Beckett. Beckett's the first book he gives me for comedy. Uh-huh. He doesn't give me doesn't give me the Smothers Brothers. <laughs> gives me Watt by Samuel Beckett, you know. I looked up to him so much. I wanted to be him so much because um I was the dumb dumb guy who went to a stupid school and, you know, lived on the streets and he went to Amherst College and was a musicologist and could speak about Albin Berg and, you know, uh, Schoenberg and uh, Stravinsky. And um, that's who I wanted to be. So the three of us teamed up as uh, music, magic, and comedy. I mean, music, magic, and comedy. And Weir did classical music on eccentric instruments, uh, like Bach on, uh, on xylophone. And I learned to play bass to be able to be part of that. And then Teller played keyboards so we could do trio stuff. And it was pretty much broken down that way. And we got very successful. Asparagus did very well in Philadelphia and in San Francisco, mostly. And we ran 965 shows in San Francisco. Longest running show at that time. Maybe longest running show. We had that record for a while. One theater, da-da-da-da, like three years. And then toward the end of that, Weir wanted to, <laughs> so, so funny. Weir wanted to go to New York with the show and go off Broadway and uh, be like written up in the New Yorker and do all that stuff and be like accepted and make money and do all that. And I didn't. 
I wanted to stay away from New York. I wanted to stay away from Off-Broadway. I wanted to keep writing new stuff. At that time, I was doing a show that I'd written most of the material when I was 19, some of the other stuff when I was 22, and now I was 25, and I was doing a show in San Francisco that was very successful and making what I thought was a huge amount of money. You know, we were playing like a 200-seat theater, three guys, really no overhead, uh, eight shows a week, you know. There's a little bit of coin. So we were doing great. And uh, Teller and I would get together trying to write new stuff. And we had no interest in writing new stuff. We've got this show. It's successful. We can keep doing this forever. Weir was also Christian. So when I would write stuff, he was Lutheran, still is, I believe. When I would write stuff that was a little bit skeptical, it was always uncomfortable. And Weir wanted to go. He, he, he was The producers wanted to take us to, to New York and make this show something. I didn't think the show was what I wanted it to be yet. I loved doing it. Loved every second of doing it. Never disliked anything. But um, I wanted to do more stuff, you know, a lot of other ideas. I said, I don't give a fuck about the New Yorker. I don't think New York is magic. I don't, I mean, in, in the other sense of magic. I don't want to make a lot of money. No desire to make a lot of money. I just want to keep banging this shit out. We're doing fine. And uh, the tension got greater and greater. And Weir decided to side with the producers. And Teller and I, the group broke up, and then Teller and I teamed up the next day. There's another way of looking at that. (laughs) (laughs) And we did a thing that was an absolute rebellion against that, which was called Mrs. Clown College, both of you. (laughs) Mrs. 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 Lonsbury's Sands of Horror which was a, uh, an act that Teller and I wrote, and I directed. I'm the worst director who's ever lived. We'll never do it again. And Teller starred in it in a speaking role with a woman that played his mother. And we put all our money into that. We had, uh, I think it was like $70,000, all the money that we'd, we'd, we'd earned, the two of us, and lost it all. It was a complete failure. Everyone hated it. Everyone hated it. And then we went back took a huge step back, went back to Renaissance festivals after being successful in theaters, built our war chest back up, and then uh, went aside and informed Penn and Teller, which was never to be called Penn and Teller. It was to be called Penn Gillette and or Teller was the title we loved. And when we went to uh, LA Stage Company, Susie Dietz said, you're clearly Penn and Teller. We said, no, no, no. The title is very important. It's Penn Gillette and or Teller. It says we do stuff together. We also do stuff separately. And Teller having the one name is pointed out by me having the full name. She said, it's Penn and Teller. <laughs> we said Penn Gillette and or Teller. And we it fought- sounds like you still regret that. We fought for that forever. And then we finally went, oh, Penn and Teller like, sounds better. <laughs> and it's also what everybody calls us. <laughs> and that's that starts that whole road there. And, and around what year is that? That would have been 85. Oh, wow. So Teller and I do our first show together in 75. And then there's 10 years that are um, Asparagus Valley and getting stuff together. Uh, it would have been like 83, I guess, 84. So I'm going to throw just... Because a- we, we were off Broadway by 85. So I'm going to just throw a few different names at you and see how relevant... They were or weren't to you guys as you're developing, as you're thinking about who you are, who you didn't want to be. Mm-hmm. Because I was listening to an interview that I thought was really interesting about sort of three different approaches to magic. Straight magic, magic with comedy, and sort of what was called the burlesquing of magic, sort of personified best by someone like a Carl Ballantyne. Yeah, Carl Ballantyne. Yeah. yeah. So 
well, let's start there. Like, was he someone you were aware of before you I was went aware down of this him. Road? I was aware of him from McHale's Navy, and I was also aware of him uh, from a few appearances on uh, Ed Sullivan. The, uh, Ed Sullivan, and we, uh, you know, my family laughed about it. It was not something I aspired to. Did I didn't it speak say, to you at all, or no? No, not particularly. I mean, I as much as he did to anyone else, but not any sort of special way. And then I, I later, of course, I met him, and I just adored him, loved him, and his daughter has great breasts. <laughs> that's a great aside yeah. um Tommy cooper tommy cooper you know is one of the people that's always talked about in magic but not a real inspiration to me i can save you a lot of time it comes Please. down to to nobody but amazing randy for the intellectual part eddie fector who was magicians nightly at the uh, forks motel in uh near buffalo new york who did uh, magic table to table who was uh fabulous magician who i loved jay marshall who uh, started uh, yes. ended up being married into Magic Incorporated in Chicago and is a huge influence on me. Billy McComb, comedy magician, who I believe, I believe wrote this joke. I believe it's him that wrote this joke. I want to die peacefully in my sleep like my grandfather, not screaming in terror like his passengers. Right. I believe that's Billy McCobb's joke. Uh -huh. And boy, that's a hard joke to beat. That's, that's Emo Phillips level that joke. That is Emo Phillips level. Like, yes. It's a, it's a elaborate architecture in that joke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really, really nice joke. And, uh, and then, of course, Johnny Thompson. Where do you put Harry Anderson in this conversation? Uh, not, not, I'm not particularly a fan. Really? Uh, I knew Harry a little bit. We got along okay. The few things, the few shows I did with him were, were difficult. He was very hard to work with. And I also felt um, I was particularly avoiding him because since other people were putting us in the same category, mm -hmm. I didn't, I don't know, that's how I react. And not through everybody acts like that. But if someone is put in the same category as me, I cut them off because I want to be able to say to people, haven't seen them. That's Bobcat and Kinnison. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but what you guys really came to represent is really a revolution in terms of that intersection of magic and comedy. Except that no one followed us. And um, also, we get a lot of credit for, you know, you guys put comedy and magic together, and that is completely undeserved. Comedy and magic have been together uh, uh, every act in vaudeville. I mean, it's very, very common. And the best pure comedy magician, in my mind, is uh, Mac King. And he comes from the direct long line. You can draw lines from everybody to Mac King. And he's... Uh, you know what's so interesting is there are certain By, by the way, nobody says Mac King's name better than I do. I, yes, correct. very well articulated. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Mac, Mac finishes, the king begins. Yeah, and Mac always says that. Mac says even he can't say his name as well as I do. <laughs> yes, no. I, I don't know if elocution lessons are somewhere in your past, but... If so, they are evident. <laughs> it's interesting to me, because we're sitting here in Las Vegas, there's so many acts that are really only known to people who come to Las Vegas, where well, obviously you've had a long, successful that's residence. The Danny, that's the Danny Gans principle. Yeah. As uh, Elbert Brooks said to me on the telephone, is there still a sign outside of Vegas that says nobody beyond this point knows who Danny Gans is? <laughs> is that sign still there? There's a, there's a clear demarcation right there of where we no longer know who Danny Gans is. By the way, it's like really dead on Albert Brooks. Props to you, sir. By the way. Now do Connery. Uh, Elbert, 
You should quite mad, you know. Then yeah, it all falls apart. Two for two. Uh, by the way, one and a half. Okay. In, okay. In all of this, in all of this discussion of our style, you need to bring in Albert Brooks and Andy Kaufman. Please. And Andy Kaufman was a huge influence on me and Teller. Andy Kaufman was everything to us. Uh, Teller first saw Andy Kaufman. We never saw him live, by the way. First saw Andy Kaufman and said, I now want, because Teller never liked comedy, no background in comedy, no interest in comedy. Teller always said, oh, I get it now. We've hit a point that anything we can't label, we just call comedy. And as soon as we saw Andy Kaufman, we said, oh, okay, we can work in show, but we can do comedy. Because it doesn't have to be comedy. Right, it doesn't right. have to be uh, set a punchline, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Uh, so Andy Kaufman was really important. Albert Brooks was hugely important to me. And of course, in all of this, where I'm kind of poo-pooing comedy, all underneath all of this was a complete respect and obsession with Lenny Bruce and George Carlin. And the first record I ever bought was the Smothers Brothers. So th there was the Smothers Brothers, Lenny Bruce, George Carlin, who even though I didn't care that much about comedy in general, like no interest in Alan King, Henny Youngman, any of those people that were on Ed Sullivan, no interest in them, no particular interest at all. There still was the undertone of, because I get the feeling, and maybe I'm wrong, that you, when you got interested in comedy, were taking in everything. Is that right? Everything. Everything. Yeah. Everything. But, yeah, and that's a big difference between uh, a, a newer generation of comedies that, you know, we would come home from school and there were three talk shows in the afternoon mm -hmm. and they would have Shecky Green on the same show with mm -hmm. Freddie Prinze. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and you know, uh, uh, Jack Benny was still working. George Burns was still that's working, also, making appearances. That's also radio. Because radio in the sixties, right. you would think nothing about having uh, having the Temptations and the Beatles on the same radio station. Right. Don't you love an extra hundred dollars in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March thirty first to get a hundred dollars back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting one hundred dollars back and one hundred percent accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Now that's right. unthinkable. Right. Unthinkable. So, 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 so yeah, so I was taking in everything. I was not. Yeah, no, here's what I'm getting about Penn. So you're liking National Lampoon. Very You're liking... Memorize those. You're liking Lenny Bruce. You're Memorized it. George Carlin memorized. So basically anything that was commenting on the culture or was challenging you in an intellectual yes, way, I had spoke to you. no respect. This came much later for me. I had no respect for people that just made you laugh. I was a, uh, I was a freak for fire sign theater, which is another weird thing. You know, Lou Reed always said that, um, people said you had to be into drugs to love the Velvet Underground, and then he had me to hold up as an example of the one person who loved the Velvet Underground and didn't do any drugs. 
And I'm also held up for that for Firesign Theater as not doing any drugs. I was a huge fan of Firesign Theater. And um, when Proctor and Bergman were on the road, the two of them, uh, I was hitchhiking. I was living nowhere. And I followed their tour, hitchhiking from city to city. Oh, wow, nice. But I did this other performance art thing that um, was just for me and my friend Mark Garland. We did this together. And it was just performance art for us. We'd read in the paper that people going to see the Rolling Stones were getting there eight hours ahead of time to be able to see the Stones. So Proctor and Bergman were playing at nine at night, and <laughs> we arrived in there at uh, noon or one and stood in line in front of the club where they were playing to see them with no one else in line the entire time just stood there. So Proctor and Bergman would arrive, you know, at an appropriate time, 8.15, and walk by these two guys in line. Well, what are you doing? We're waiting for the show. Uh, okay, well, but then the next city, 400 miles away, it's the same two guys. So finally, after being there... Um, uh, two or three cities. At the end of the show, Proctor and Bergman invited me backstage. And I've always been so envious of uh, women friends of mine who were groupies who went backstage and they were like 15 or 16 and met people in show business and blew them and whatever. I would have done that easily just to be backstage because I'd never get to be backstage. Uh, but Proctor and Bergman invited me backstage. So I'm sitting backstage, which to me, uh, I mean, we know probably what that club was, right? The cellar door. We've been backstage in there. But to me, this was just the unattainable heaven. You know, the dirty sofa and sodas and beers and guys talking. And the stench of stale beer. and About a show? Yeah. You're talking about a show? I said I was a juggler, you know. And, of course, they did stickola on being a juggler. I said I, I was kind of a little, I had a little interest in, in comedy. What's their advice for comedy? And Phil Proctor said, know everything. Know everything. He said, study Russian, study, study Chinese, learn physics, read the paper, know everything. That's your best advice in comedy. That's great. Don't worry about anything, just know everything. So. And that's why the references in any Firesign Theater album are so hip and so all over the all place. over the place know everything so and there's a punchline to this it's very very funny uh, i think uh, i was on broadway i was on broadway and phil proctor did not of course i mean i, I, mean, I say this like surprising he did not remember me from being a fan but i talked in interviews about being a fire sign theater fan so we're after the show on broadway and i see phil proctor and i go up and i of course a few all over him and uh, I said, you know, da, 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 performance art, da, da, you invited me backstage. I said, you gave me, you gave me advice. <laughs> and Phil Proctor said, okay, you're on Broadway with your own show. I'm not working. Think back to what I said to you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> word for word. And tell it to me now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. I said, you told me to know everything. He said, 
That's completely useless. <laughs> completely useless. That's not going to get me to Broadway. Damn. And uh, Phil and I have been friends since then. Oh, God, that's funny. That's <laughs> oh. gorgeous. But Firesign Theater, I don't know how uh, in any list of records it would be, you know, Tommy Smothers, Lenny Bruce, George Carlin, Firesign Theater. So but here's what Firesign Theater is. What Firesign Theater is to comedy albums is what Pet Sounds and Sgt. Pepper yeah. is to rock albums. And throw throw Freak Out in there, too. Yeah, for freak, sure. For sure. Sgt. Pepper's only happens because of Freak Out. You know, that was that was... That was, you know, Paul McCartney's idea was let's do freak out. <laughs> yeah, and you know Frank Zappa also, and Martin Mull, Martin Mull, uh, Martin Mull, and Martin Frank Mull Zappa. comes. Martin Mull comes after Fireside. Yes, 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 very yeah. much so. But Martin Mull was also very important because he was the first really out of the closet atheist that I just that I just followed. That Monty Python too, but I didn't I didn't jack into Monty Python like everyone else did. Uh, I was more, uh, I mean, I liked him, but it wasn't until, I didn't like anything until Holy Grail. And then I liked that very much, which I also, because of my visual memory thing, I didn't realize it was all the same people. Over Holy there. Grail uh, or uh, Life of Brian? Holy Grail. Was, Holy Grail was before. No, 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 no. But I mean, if you, between I like, the two. I like Holy Grail better. Interesting. Even though the, the blasphemy, you'd think I would like uh, uh, Life of Brian, but I like Holy Grail a little better. There is no blasphemy in Life of Brian. That's right. <laughs> yes, Eric Idle always corrects people. It's not blasphemous, it's heretical. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yes, but so uh, Firesign Theater and, and, and Martin Mull was really, really important to me. And when I, uh, when I first uh, met him, I said, your atheism is so important to me. And Martin Mull said, there's no God, it's not even up for discussion. <laughs> <laughs> And Martin Mull has ended up being a uh, very, very good friend, thus destroying, destroying the, uh, the the myth of you should never meet your heroes. The residents, Jonathan Richman, Lou Reed, Phil Proctor, Martin Mull have all become uh, have all become I, friends. I, I have dispelled that an amazing Randy. that axiom over and over. I always say, whoever said that had different heroes than me. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe Elvis. For <laughs> your Pete Wolf story of beating Elvis, he might have said that, and he would have been accurate. Now, this is obviously not true, but it's a story I tell myself. I can't get a hold of it. But all I wanted to do, all I wanted when I was uh, 16 was to be gay, Jewish, and from New York. It's all I wanted. And I mean really aggressively. To the point of, you know, Bette Midler and Judy Garland records, trying everything I could to be gay, trying everything I could to be Jewish. You know, I was, you know. Uh, we can talk about that one. I, I, would, I would actually make, you know, I was listening to Lenny Bruce all the time. So my. my so you picked up some Yiddish? Yeah. It, my, my language was, 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 was peppered with schmuck and putz and shtick. And I was living in Greenfield, Massachusetts. <laughs> no one else understood those words. You're the only one schlepping. I'm the only one schlepping. <laughs> Let's schlep the schmuck out of here and strip him with our schlongs. I was the only one. Who was, you you know. say that as well as you say Matt King. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I wanted to get to New York. I had to get to New York. So I got to New York. Got my ass to New York. And that's where I first ran into Teller. And in my memory, which cannot be true, I must be compressing a year into a week. But I believe in my first week in New York, 
I saw Lemmings, Gilbert Gottfried, and Brother Theodore. Wow. <laughs> I went. Wow. I went to a club. I'd never been to a comedy club. I wasn't very interested in going to a comedy club, but I thought I'll go one night. And I went one night, and this would be 73 or 74. That would be around the same time as Lemmings, for sure. Right. And it was probably I, the improv. Gilbert, I, don't, I was going to say, you can tell me what club it was. It was either improv or catch or one of those. I went to the improv. I saw Belzer and did not like him at all. Did not like him. Saw another comic, did not like him. And then a guy came on at the end, on stage. There was a piano player. And he started talking about how fat his wife was and doing shtick on the comedians that he'd gone before and doing stuff about comedy. And the world stopped for me. And he was about my age. Turns out he was uh, uh, 10 days older than me. No, six days older than me. It was Gilbert Gottfried. And the world crumbled. And I said, Jesus Christ, comedy can be anything. I've never seen anything as brilliant and also so goddamn funny, you know, funny in a way that Lenny Bruce wasn't, you know, Lenny Bruce was well, deep down in the gutter funny. It's interesting because Gilbert really, uh, there was no commentary, no, certainly no overt social commentary or no. criticism of anything. No. Gilbert was just sort of in the, his work was just in this sort of ether. But avant-garde. Avant-garde. anything that you could call intellectual. And then. It's very organic. Well, no, very intellectual, but we, we, we're just talking different. There's just yeah. no reason to have that discussion. But um, then Teller took me to see Brother Theodore in the village. Mm -hmm. Everything. Everything. And. I saw Lemmings because I was a National Lampoon nut. And I remember I didn't know anything. I was a rube, complete rube. M maybe still am. So I looked up in the phone book, National Lampoon. And from a, from a pay phone, I called National Lampoon. And the phone was answered. And O'Donoghue. No. And I said, uh, uh, is this, this can't be Michael O'Donoghue. He said, yeah. What do you want? I said, well, I wanted to buy tickets to see Lemmings. He said, go to the fucking box office. Wow. <laughs> He's really Chuck Berry. <laughs> yeah. I, I was, I, I, uh, wow, New York is so nice. <laughs> and then I went there and afterwards I talked to Chevy and John uh, a lot. They were very, when, when, when Chevy Chase did his um, biker guy pouring beer on the audience, he was pulling my hair and pouring beer in my head, shit like that. And I talked to them afterwards and I couldn't believe it because I was speaking with professional people and they were taking me seriously. I don't know for what reason, you know, what do you do? I'm a juggler, <laughs> you know? So I saw, and I, it can't have been a week, right? It cannot have been a week, but possible Lenny Bruce. I'm not laborers. Lemmings, Gilbert Gottfried, Brother Theodore. Wow. And then I knew 
that there was something to the showbiz thing. <laughs> this might be a really great, great thing. But by the way, and here's, it's a really important thing to note for anybody listening to this when you say, why were these guys talking to you? They were barely in show business. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, they were pretty much, yeah, yeah. they were kind of renegades. Yeah. I mean, no, but they were also really at the beginning of the journey. Sure, yeah. sure. I and, mean, and, Lemmings was the first National and, Lampoon stage. And they, they weren't coming in through the front door. They were coming in. I also met uh, Tony Hendra that night. Right. Uh, Tony Hendra was there and uh, Christopher Guest. Yes. Uh, and who's the who's the other, um, just blanked, a Bill Murray brother? Um, Brian? Brian. Brian, Brian Doyle. Doyle. Yeah. yeah. He was doing the um, go placidly amid the noise and haste thing in a-, in a De Desiderata. Yeah, Desiderata. He was yeah. doing that. And that Lemmings show stayed with me completely, you know, I- yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, it's a nice intersection with your music stuff too. Yeah, yeah, your, your yeah really fascination nice. with music. Yeah, uh, because I always talk about Lemmings as the beginning of that intersection of comedy and rock and roll, because that's essentially what it was. It was comedy Woodstock, and that did not exist before that. Right, you, rock and roll was sacred. You did not make fun of rock and roll. I couldn't believe they were making fun of John Lennon. Well, that's on Radio Dinner, which is yeah. seeds. Yeah, uh, when I first heard that, yeah. when I first heard Tony, and I talked to Tony a lot about this, when I first heard Tony making fun of John Lennon, I thought only Squares made fun of John Lennon. Uh -huh. No one who was at all hip could make fun of John Lennon. George Carlin didn't make fun of George uh, uh -huh. John Lennon. Uh -huh. But you know what? It's the difference of, it, it, so when I worked on Portlandia, we talked about the difference between satire and affectionate satire, which is a very specific lane, mm -hmm. which Lemmings and Spinal Tap, and I like to think that, uh, you know, Portlandia, what it was was not those idiots over there, but when you do affectionate satire, the audience understands, oh, this is us. Well, we are making fun of what we love and us. Gene Shepard and Stan Freeberg. Stan Freeberg, by the way, also a big hero of mine, and Gene Shepard, which was really hard to get in Greenfield. He had to pick it up. Yeah, it was N.E.W., right? Yeah, really yeah. hard to get. I went to sp see both of them speak close together. They both See, everybody would speak in Amherst. See, I'm completely rural, but then there's, there's the whole five college area. So I get there. I went to see Stan Freeberg's speech. And I went to see uh, Gene Shepard speak. Two very important moments to me. They each said something that absolutely killed me. Stan Freeberg said, I don't know which one comes first. I don't even know which one is first better artistically. Stan Freeberg said, do not make fun of anything unless you hate it. And Gene Shepard said, do not make fun of anything unless you love it. It's hilarious. And they weren't talking to each other, and they weren't <laughs> aware of each other giving the speech. And I remember hearing that and going, they're exactly right. Yes. There has to be passion. Yes. That's what that says, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what was really, what I've always hated is those parodies done by people who don't have a point of view. Mm. I fucking hate that. Yeah. Agree a hundred percent. If you don't, I mean, I don't care if you love it or hate it, but what I don't want is, this is a funny bit. Right. I'll do a bit about Simon and Garfunkel being, uh, fuck you, you know, <laughs> yeah. have a strong feeling about it. We got to say something about this. And it, the funny thing is, personally, from what I've heard, Gene Shepard, whose comedy was full of love, was actually a very cold and unpleasant person to be around. And Stan Freeberg, whose comedy is all full of hate, was just the sweetest guy in the world. <laughs> oh, a doll, by the way. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I did the interview with him, one of the last ones with him for uh, 
one of the uh, things in in, uh, in L.A. I'll tell you a story. It's one of my favorite stories to tell about having lunch with Stan a couple years before he died in Brentwood and sitting alone at a table when I came in was George Carlin, who was a huge Freeberg fan. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, I'm having lunch with another of my heroes, Stan Freeberg. And he got like a little kid. And he said, can I come over and say hi? Sure. So Freeberg and his wife come and sit down. And George Carlin comes and stands at the edge of the table. And his opening gambit was, hey, man, it's too loud, man. It's too (laughs) piercing. It's piercing. piercing. And then he proceeds to tell... Stan Freeberg, that when he was a DJ in Shreveport, Louisiana, that he almost got fired for playing Stan's record, Green Christmas, <laughs> over and over, because he said, he told his station manager, he says, no, I'm going to keep playing it, because it's the most moral record ever made. Yeah, well, it is that. Right? It is right? that. Yeah. Yeah. that and cool? the amazing thing about Stan Freeberg is I finally wrote to him, and I said, the really fabulous singing on Deo, who is that? It's Stan Freeberg. It is. <laughs> that stuff, yeah. The action, I, I thought he uh, he directed it and wrote it and brought in some really serious... Sing- He's singing it as well as Harry Belafonte. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> That's he, funny. Really quite a, quite a musician, Stan Freeberg. Just amazing. And Gene Shepard, just, I just... As a matter of fact, I may have done a stupid thing on his television show. Gene Shepard had a television show out of Jersey where he did great monologues, and he had this hidden cabaret segment. We pretended there was a cabaret act. Mm-hmm. And one of the first appearances we ever did was on Gene Shepard's wow. show, wow. Asparagus Valley Cultures. I don't even know if the, if the uh, recording exists. We did, a, we, did a, we did a show. And I had been told by people very strongly, never meet your heroes. So I passed up the opportunity to meet Gene Shepard. Which, um, D. Snyder... Tells me it was the smartest move of my life. Because oh, he met he met Gene Shepard and uh, it, it, hurt, it hurt his appreciation of Gene Shepard. I, I, I could, it kind of feels like Gene Shepard could be uh, uh, difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah. mean, from his work, I think you yeah, can you feel can that. that. Yeah, you can see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's also interesting that the people that tend to, um, to push sweetness and love are often rebelling against something. I mean, this is dime store shit. But I mean, John Lennon being the meanest fucker that ever lived and doing all the peace and love stuff, you know, it's it's really interesting to me. Well, you can't take drugs and alcohol out of that equation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For a lot of people, seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. It, that really does throw things off. Yeah. But I want to ask you this. Not only did you decide to throw your lot in with Teller and suddenly you're in show business, and you're doing magic, which wasn't what you set out to do. But the idea of being in a team is kind of a profound uh, uh, decision. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry for the cliche about being like a marriage, but actually it's, it's more complicated even than yeah. a marriage, I think. Teller and I, uh, I've said this a million times, never felt affection for one another. And I don't know whether it's pheromones or how far your eyes are apart, but there are certain people that are friends of mine like Paul Provenza, that I that there was a, there was a cuddly affection when I first met Paul. There's other friends of mine like Rich Nathanson. There was none of that. What I would call a relationship that would exist just as well on the internet. When I met Teller, absolutely no attraction whatsoever. Our relationship was entirely intellectual, 
and my decision to throw my lot in with Teller was not that I liked being around him, but that I felt I would do better stuff with him than I would do on my own, which I have proven in many side projects. So Teller and I have always operated our partnership as though we were operating a dry cleaning shop or a 7-Eleven, you know, two managers of a 7-Eleven. That's what we are. And so we always show up on time. We're in our way polite, in our way respectful, and we get stuff done and move through. And if we hate each other and things are falling apart, nothing to do with the job. Totally unrelated. Lennon and McCartney fell in love. There was a romantic love there. Gilbert and Sullivan were in love. Martin and Lewis don't even start. Right. That was just a love affair that may very well have been sexual. Same with Lennon and McCartney. Teller and I never had any of that. And I believe that's the saving grace. Was that deliberate? Well, I, I told you, just, just first meeting, were... just the way it was. Okay. And, you know, uh, Mox gets very upset when I say, because she said, Teller is your BFF. And there is no doubt about that. My children were born, first person to hold them outside of the family was Teller. When our parents died, the first person we talked to was each other. There's no doubt we're incredibly close. A side effect of your early days, you, your, your, your hours in the car, you shared housing, you shared whatever. Like yeah. you, you have all of the things that you would, you would pass every BFF test yes. on a newlywed game show or something like that. Every single one. Yeah. That's why I asked the question if it's deliberate, because it sounds like there's some intellectual rationalization for remaining very armored in this relationship. Well, yes, it, yes, there is, but it's always been the show. And I think that when Lennon and McCartney discovered they were no longer in love, that's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. we, have not, we have nothing like that to lose. We have our show, and that's what we both are doing, you know? So there's no one I respect more than Teller, blah, blah, blah. Anything you want to do, use any superlative you want for Teller, and that's true. I have all that. But it's very different when, it, when, it's, when it's an intellectual relationship. And I think you've rarely seen that in show business. Mm. I think it's very rare, completely unprecedented in rock and roll. Yeah. You know, where bands are formed just on the basis of affection. I mean, there's really nothing else. I mean, Rod Stewart and Ron Wood, I mean, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. It's just, it's all romantic relationships. You don't usually have, but of course, both Teller and I are, are also both a little bit formal and standoffish in our own ways as well. Remember what I said that maybe we could work on you being a Jew? Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, not so much. That's, that's not happening. There's, there's no way in here. Um, uh, so, Teller and I rarely, almost never, go out together. Huh. You know, maybe a couple times a year, the two of us will actually be out. I go over his house once a year, twice a year, maybe, for any reason at all. Teller comes to my house a little more often because he's in relation to my children. But um, still not often. And if there's a gathering at my home, uh, Teller's rarely there. If a group of friends go out, we have a lot of friends that we share. And they usually pick one of us. Mm -hmm. We go to L.A., friends of us, both of us will just say, I'm going out with Penn tonight, I'm going out with Teller tonight. Just very separate. But we were in Atlantic City. I'm sorry, separate, but with no weirdness about any of no, it. No, no, no. We were in Atlantic City. I got a phone call from Rossi. Of Alan and Rossi. I was in my room. We were playing Trump Castle before he destroyed that on his way to destroying the country. 
<laughs> and uh, I got a phone call from someone really in showbiz that I'd seen. On, and this is like, uh, uh, let me make up a date, 92, maybe. I get a, I get a phone call. And he says, uh, hey, Ben. I go, yeah. He goes, this is, uh, this is Rossi of Alan. I went, whoa, 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 whoa. That's really exciting. He goes, you know, we're playing here at Trump Castle. And I said, well, you know, where, where are you? And he goes, we're in the lounge. And we were in the you know, headliner room. And he said, I would like you to come, come by and see us. I said, you know, I'd really like that. And we, whatever we have to discuss to do the bookkeeping for when our show is and when their show are, we, we, found, a, we found a time that I could go see him. And on a whim, just on a whim, I called up and said, you know, tell her you want to go down and see Alan Rossi. Remember, we used to see him on the Sullivan Show. It's the, who, do, well, you know, uh, hello there. It's, it's that guy. Oh, yeah, 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 Alan Rossi. More than the great, you know, uh, Mondo Cane. Uh, well, want to go? Tell her goes, uh, yeah, yeah. So this is this weird outing. Like, this will be one of the two that year. Teller and I head down in the hotel we're staying at and that we're headlining in with our billboards all over. We go down to the lounge, and the lounge is not a good gig. It is not a good gig. Uh, you can hear the slot machines, people are coming in and out. There's a bar. There's no, no walls at all. It's just a stage. And on the stage is a piano. And then there's, you know, this is back in the days of tube televisions because this is, you know, early 90s. So it's a big, fat Sony Trenatron on stage on a metal AV club stand <laughs> and there it's showing a, I imagine VHS or maybe DVD loop of Alan and Rossi on Ed Sullivan and their various appearances to remind people of who they are. There's a cardboard sign says Alan and Rossi with their picture. And then I think, uh, Marty Allen's wife opened singing at the piano, you know, and tell and I are sitting there and there's probably, I don't know. I don't know which way I romanticize this, my memory is, but probably two dozen people, you know, maybe, maybe fewer. Mm. Tell and I kind of in the back and we got our club sodas and we're sitting there watching and she finishes and Alan and Rossi come out and they start doing their routines from Ed Sullivan with some new stuff, but also the routines from Ed Sullivan. They're getting fine laughs and it's going over well and it's obviously this is material they wrote when they were they were younger and we're sitting there watching it's it's not i tell this story and people try to put on it that it's pathetic it's it's not pathetic it's just what it is right, right? and we're sitting there we're, we're watching and at one point they're in the middle of trying to do a bit that's that's kind of dated and they can't really get the audience around you know it's obvious they know this shit inside out, but it's not really contemporary. And I, I lean over to tell her and I go, uh, you know, this is us in like, I don't know, 15, 20 years. This is us. And Teller just leans over and says, I am so okay with that. <laughs> and it's hard to tell that story without crying. I've never, it's ever it's loved Teller more than that moment. And I remember, and I'm even going to say who it was because fuck it. Lance Burton was talking to me and said to me, um, and also Lisa Lampanelli said almost the same thing to me. They said to me, um, you know, once you've headlined in Vegas, and, you know, Lance says, once you've got your name on the strip on a theater, the Lance Burton Theater, and 
you know, um, Lampanelli said, once you've headlined one of the biggest clubs here, you know, they said, you can't possibly go back to like not doing that, just playing a regular room. You can't go back to just doing the comedy circuit. And I remember with each of them, I just looked at them and said, what the fuck is wrong with you? Are you out of your fucking minds? Of course we're going to go the other way. Of course we're going to be playing little clubs. I said, I'm, I'm already ready to play Arizona Charlie's. <laughs> I'm already ready to play Laughlin. I mean, this is what I fucking do. And, I, and I've said this many times too. You know how Carson retired arguably at his prime or very, very good. And Sinatra kept going till he was no good. I don't understand Carson at all. <laughs> I intend to be on stage while I suck. <laughs> I intend to have nothing to offer to the audience <laughs> and still be going out there. It's never been a question to me. You know, <laughs> Bob Dylan's son said to me, uh, you know, if, if, if my father had never made it, he'd be singing those same songs on the street corner. <laughs> and I, There's no doubt about that. What the fuck do we do? You know, we did we did not get into this business to have a theater named after us or to play the big rooms. Anybody anybody whose goal it is their goal is a venue, anybody that wants to play Broadway, anybody that wants to have their own theater in Vegas, anybody that wants to play a stadium, fuck you. You do not you are you're not in the same business I'm in. You know, Tiny Tim did the same fucking act at a lesbian club in 1961 that he did at the Isle of Wight Festival in 1969. It's the same fucking act. <laughs> he didn't care one fucking bit what the venue was. I mean, knowing a venue doesn't mean jack fucking shit. If you want to be famous, fuck you in the neck. Okay, in the uh, pantheon, <laughs> in the pantheon mm -hmm. of Vegas headliners i mean because now you're you're pretty much a destination act if you want to see penn and teller you go to vegas right the way shecky used to be please do the way yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes please do six shows a week how many shows a week is it now we're only doing four now four the pandemic we're, we're, all right okay we got uh so in the pantheon of all of these people uh uh this club that you are now a major part of and have been for quite a while how many feel like you do none so you're you're out you're you're outliers. You know when you first talked about you you guys were going to do your show here, it, it was confusing for a lot of us, and you had to create a narrative for all of us. Yeah, as I often say, it's when you're living in New York and you say to your friends, "I'm going to move to Vegas and do our show there." It's like if you're sitting around with your artist friends and you say, "You know what I'm going to do." I'm going to start painting entirely on velvet, <laughs> entirely with neon, and it's going to be just Jesus and Elvis. That's all I'll be painting from now on. And your friends go, Pablo. Uh. <laughs> Same level of integrity. I don't know. <laughs> but you know what? It's even, it's even greater a distance for you guys because you are, you are atheists, teetotalers, anti-gambling, all of that sort of stuff. So it was a, even a harder leap for uh, us to get our heads around. So fucking easy. And the answer has already been told to you. What we care about is the fucking show. When we moved to Vegas, we got our own warehouse, our own shop, 
and our own crew. We had never fucking had that. And we get to do something, since you do stand-up mostly, um, you guys don't understand the importance of this. We rehearse on the stage we're going to work on. Mm-hmm. You know how many people get to do that? Exactly zero. You, you know, there's Penn and Teller and that's it. That's it. When Teller and I are working on new bits, we're often sitting in chairs in the center of the stage, the two of us talking with the lights on. We don't, we don't tape things out on the floor. This is where they're going to be. We check our side angles with people sitting in the actual fucking seats, right? When we were in New York working on Broadway, we had to go to a place things are being fabricated in Brooklyn, go to another place in Jersey to rehearse. And then we couldn't walk on the fucking stage. You understand that? You can't walk. If you're thinking about going to Broadway and your dream is to get your show on Broadway, I'm going to tell you something right now. That moment you're going to have when you walk out on your set and look out at the theater and say to yourself, I've made it, you can't do it. (laughs) They They won't let you walk there. You can't fucking walk there. You understand that? You can't walk on the fucking stage you're working on. Because that is a four-hour full union call to walk out and go, hey, I made it. No, that's not worth the money. We can right now, we can go over to the, I I got the keys. I know the codes. We can go over right now to the Rio. You can walk out of the center of my stage, look out there and go, I'm Paul Provenza. I've made it. You're welcome to. Cost you nothing. Nothing. No, but that's um, that's a huge deal. Yeah. No, we have I, the I only place in the world we can run our show for 21 years. Wow. So much of what you had been doing in the earlier part of your career was kind of a... a like blast off for example yeah lift off Uh, lift off lift off is is you're essentially satirizing uh you know vegas magicians so that's an interesting thing for you guys to come and become institutions in vegas from that point of view i suppose although our relationship i mean even weirder than vegas is fool us Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. here's the people who were thrown out of the Magic Castle. <laughs> Here are the right, people who are right. still not allowed to be members of the Magic Circle. Is, is that true? Still not allowed. Yes. No kidding. So they have a museum case of Penn and Teller <laughs> with props of ours and absolute blowjobs about how great we are, but we're not allowed to be members. We were thrown out of the Magic Castle. I had one magician take a swing at me, you know, and now we are the granddads of Magic you know, welcoming all these people in. And I'll, but remember. And how many years has Fool Us been running? Like six, seven? More. Ten. Yeah. Really? Wow. Yeah. I, I say this in the show, but it's pretty interesting. We had a uh, guy on who started magic. First time he saw magic was on Fool Us when he was five years old. Wow. Came on 10 years later, wow. kicked our asses. <laughs> Fool Us. <laughs> I mean, his whole life was just boom. Uh, so yeah, we we you know, but that that always that always happens. Every single uh, case of uh, of someone that comes in, you come in from the outside, you find your way in, you push your way in, and then if you stay and you're successful, you you can't you can't keep that point of view. I mean, uh, we try to have the same integrity and the same intensity. We're writing more new stuff. By the way, we have written. 
more new stuff in the past five years than in all our other career together. Because of pandemic. Yeah, well, no, that wasn't it. <laughs> we were doing that before that. But we have, I think we've now written more magic than anybody else in history. And uh, we love it. We got, you know, five new bits going in now. There's no pressure on us. Uh, no one else in Vegas changes their show. But I mean, this is what we do. <laughs> And that's the thing. You know, you know how I've ranted about this, uh, prevents people to get into stand-up comedy in order to do sitcoms? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, makes me crazy. I mean, I guess it's the right route and it's what you should do and blah, blah, blah. But no, I did not get into what we do in order to get out of it. I did not start doing magic and comedy so that I could play golf. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't understand why that's a pathway. And by the way, everybody else, do they do that? Yeah. Everybody else with an eight o'clock show gets there at seven thirty on the nose and they aren't in the theater except for the time they're doing that. That's everyone else. When I say everyone else except Piff, yeah. I think then then the list is over, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's only because Piff learned how to do this from us. hundred percent. Right, right, he right. learned the wrong way. Yeah. Because <laughs> Piff changes his show all the fucking time because no one's told Piff other people don't do it. <laughs> no one hit Piff to that. Piff yeah. just goes, oh, yeah, that's way better to tell <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Every morning radio show that asks you to be on when you're touring, you get on and do it at 6 a.m. Sure, 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 sure. No, Piff. That's what I did. <laughs> isn't that great to be the model? I mean, I see so many comics now doing what Carlin did. You know, for how many years? How many, like, decade upon decade? You know, a comic put together their act, and then that was their act. Yeah. And Carlin was the guy who wrote up until the special, and then shot the special, and then he would go out and he would do less and less of the material yeah. in that special as he wrote more stuff until he had a whole new hour, and then 18 months later, another special, but that, and never looked back. All of that, all of that, I believe that way of putting it in a special distorts it somewhat. When I was 15 years old, I got these weird ideas that I wanted to do. I'm now 67 years old. I get these weird ideas I want to do. The only difference is that now I have money and power and a thousand people a night, they're going to come see it, which is only better. So Carlin had a special every year that he did, but to say that is almost doing him a slight disservice if he had no TV special to do. If he was touring constantly to people that never saw him more than once, he would still be doing new stuff. And, and this is the most important thing I'm going to say, not because you're sick of the old stuff. Right. There is not a bit in our career, with, you know, with exceptions of things that failed, there's not a bit in my career that I'm happy with that I wouldn't be happy to do for the rest of my life. That show that I did in San Francisco, I'd be happy to do today. Except there's other stuff I want to do too. So when you go to the show tonight, someone goes to the show tonight, they will see one bit in the show tonight that Teller's been doing longer than he knew me. And he's not sick of it. But that'll come out of the show in two weeks, not because he's sick of it, because he'll never be sick of it, but because there's another bit that we're working on we'd like to see in there. What would that be like? But the, the, there's two points of view on this that both of them make me crazy. One is you do new stuff because there's um, there's commercial pressure. And two is you do new stuff because you're sick of the old stuff. Neither of those are true. You do new stuff because that's 
what you do. <laughs> and you do a show at the Penn and Teller Theater, not because you always wanted to have your own theater and now you're on the strip and that's what you do. You, you do it because you're going to be doing that wherever you are. And that may mean I'm playing acoustic guitar at a Starbucks coffee shop mm -hmm. over in the corner playing songs no one cares about, but this is what I do. You know, there's a song um, by uh, the old 97, uh, kind of an alt-country band, that is, we've been doing this longer than you've been alive, <laughs> is the name of the song. And there's a line in it that's just very simple. Now you just do it because it's what you do. Because it's what you do, <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, and I think that... Um, it's so hard for me to get anyone to understand that I'm not sick of the old stuff and people aren't making me do new stuff. It's even insane. When I was 16, no one was making me put together a juggling act. As a matter of fact, there were people <laughs> trying to stop me. Yes, actively discouraging me. My uh, parents did not think juggling was the right angle for me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you'll find a lot of parents who will say, you stick with that. <laughs> <laughs> you stick with that juggling. You stick with that juggling. You always got your poetry to fall back on. <laughs> so, we wrapping it up? We're done. You uh, got, there's nothing else you could possibly want to know. This has been amazing. I mean, this, that this was <laughs> no, truly because I have to tell you because you're such an amazing storyteller. This is the least I've ever had to work on one of these. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Except it is red. All those in favor? <laughs> that was Sunday School. That was Sunday School. Cha cha cha. And to you become naked. My favorite hymn, by the way, from when I went to church when I was a child. This song called "This Is My Father's World." Not, not a Catholic hymn. Yeah, clearly. Not a Jewish hymn. All right. This is First Congregationalist Church, Greenfield, Massachusetts. What is it? What is this, Lutheran? <laughs> no, no, no. Congregationalist. Congregationalist. What is that That's exactly? What yeah. What is that? What does that mean? It's a church of the covered dish supper. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Wait, 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 wait. Rich Hall. No, me. Oh, did he steal it from you? I don't know. Oh, is that was a joke Rich Hall used to do. Church of the covered dish supper. Uh, he said that when you die, you have to bring a covered dish. I did. That's, a, yeah. that's that's a better version of that. Uh, we know we love you. Anybody to thank there, Matt? Yeah, it's time to thank the people who support us over at patreon.com slash pen. These are the loyal members of the congregation. Brogan Hastings, Placida Scott, Damian Martin, Adam Luce hopes Teller has a speedy recovery. Well, they're about to relaunch their show, so there you go. Timo Tihoff, Mark Pickenheim, Miriam Engels, Scott Kelly, Kelly M., Adam Berzins, Matthew Applehands, Fractured Adventures, Carlos Alvarez, Nicholas Emerson, Michael Cornwall, Ross Devereux, Rue Dudley, Ryan Matthews, Jeff Bacher, Eric Dobell, Michael Torbay, Elon Lee, Jacob McCulley, Nicole Martin, Crazy Cat Lady Scoop, Nick Hemzing, Music Man, No Thank You Daddy, Rachel Hawkins, Jake Schneider, Pete Hoke, Kelly McCauley, Jeremy Davidson, Robin Garnett, Tom and Julie Lynn, Penn married us eight years ago, but we're not stalking him. Ovi Dimitrian Jr., Jeremy R. 22, Winter Ryakowski, 
Kristen Kladick, Michael Cohen, Dr. Scooplittle, Jeremiah Jenkins, Jesse Miller, Alexander Hoffman, Danny Olwine, Sean Magruder, Stephen Volcano, Jim, the now 24 yearly performances Naked Magician, Scooped Mids, and Paul McBride. Thank you all so much.